Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, and you're listening to Plan Talk from Janice Henderson Investors. Many of you may be as addicted as I am to Wordle. If you haven't played it, the object of this game is to figure out what the daily five-letter word is. You get six guesses, and the game tells you if you have the right letter, the right letter but in the wrong space, or if the letter you've selected is not part of the word. Every day, I go on to the Wordle website and try to figure out the word in as few guesses as possible. Some days, however, the word is less obvious than others. I stare at the screen and try to figure out what letter goes in which space, and many times I have no idea, so I just guess. Plan sponsors these days are playing a similar game when it comes to plan menus. There are several ways to fill in the spaces of the plan menu, but what is going to be the right answer for today? Plan sponsors also have the added difficulty of not only having to think about today's answer when it comes to investment options they offer participants, but what the answer is going to be tomorrow and years into the future. Plus, even though Wordle keeps it to five-letter words, a plan's core menu can have more or less options. The average plan menu these days has around 20 funds, but a core menu could have 21 or 15 or 25 and any of those options could work today and tomorrow. Along with that, recent research has provided a differing view that I fear may lead to plan sponsors not knowing what to do and just staring at their screens with no idea how to fill in the spaces. So today I'd like to go over some recent news and research and then provide some ideas on how you might parse this information and construct plan menus for today and tomorrow. The first major piece of news that we saw was a recent ruling from the Supreme Court on the Northwestern University 403B lawsuit. Many thought this case's trip to Washington, D.C. would lead to a groundbreaking ruling. However, it was simply remanded back to a lower court. And while the ruling was not earth-shaking, it is important. And I do think there are a couple of items from it that plan sponsors would be wise to heed. First, the judgment reminds us of the landmark Tibble v. Edison case and of a plan sponsor's continuing duty to monitor and possibly remove investments. The judgment also notes that this continuing duty to monitor covers all of the investments in a plan menu. Now, to most, this seems pretty commonsensical, but If we think about it from the standpoint of a 403B plan like Northwestern's, which had hundreds of options, you can see how this idea may be a bit more applicable. And while many of you may not deal with plans with hundreds of investment options, there is the thought that this decision and the ongoing fiduciary pressure advisors and plan sponsors face could lead many to consider decreasing the number of investment options in the core menu. In fact, in a recent webinar, I heard a couple of experts hammer home the ideas that each and every fund in a plan menu needs to be reviewed, 
and that plan sponsors need to sharpen their focus on fund review and risk analysis. Along with that, a practical question came up during this webinar. The question was, if investment committees read every page of a fund prospectus, how long will it take? If, for example, a prospectus is on average 50 pages long, the time needed to read through such a document in order to have a thorough understanding of an investment and thus a plan menu increases substantially with every added investment to the plan menu. So based on these ideas, many would say, you know what, let's reduce the number of funds in the plan menu so that we can do the appropriate level of due diligence. That's on one side of the coin. However, on the other side, we've seen research of late asking the question of whether plan menus are set up for the long term and if there are other funds and asset classes which should be considered for inclusion. The main reason for these considerations would be due to the changes we're seeing in long-term capital market assumptions, which include lower returns and less yield from both equities and fixed income. Along with that, many do not feel retirement plan investment menus have been created with retirement in mind, nor do they consider that retirement plans have become decumulation vehicles rather than just accumulation vehicles. The last point is one that we've talked about a lot over the past couple of years, as more and more plan sponsors are telling participants that after they retire, they are more than welcome to leave their assets in the plan. In fact, a survey by Cerulli Associates found that 84% of plan sponsors with more than $500 million in plan assets would prefer that former employees who have retired keep their savings in the plan rather than rolling money into an IRA. The other thing we know is that as participants get older, they have more financial capital. They have more responsibilities. They just have more going on. So they are more likely to work with a financial professional. And in many cases, they will then work with that financial professional to put together an asset allocation within their employer's retirement plan. In fact, Prudential recently showed that the percentage of participants who use professionally managed options, such as target date funds or managed accounts, decreases from over 80% of participants in their 20s to only 36% of participants in their 60s. Finally, Fidelity's 2021 Plan Sponsor Attitude Survey said that the number one concern among plan sponsors was whether their plan was effectively preparing participants for retirement. So what I see based on all of these trends and all of this data is plan sponsors are being pulled in two opposing directions. They're facing heightened scrutiny and facing the increased threat of fiduciary liability suits, which may prompt them to consider offering fewer plan menu options. But then the needs of participants, the markets, and plan sponsors' own concern for the well-being of participants may be prompting them to consider offering more options in the plan menu. And while there's no way to figure out what a perfect plan menu looks like, 
I'd like to take some time and review some of this research that we've recently seen and see if we can meld it into the average lineup of today in order to improve things. Now, recent research has shown that the average number of funds in a plan's core menu is somewhere around 20, not taking into account the plan's target date fund series. And this would include funds like a large growth, a large value, possibly a small blend, a mid-cap growth or value fund, possibly a foreign large growth fund, core plus bond investments on the fixed income side, maybe even a diversified emerging markets fund, a money market fund, and of course, a stable value fund. So with that as our foundation, let's start and look at the equity side of the ledger. Now, as I mentioned, most plans offer participants the ability to allocate to value and growth funds in the large cap, mid cap, and maybe even small cap asset classes. And they can do this both domestically and sometimes internationally. Of course, being able to have that exposure to both is important for diversification purposes. And that actually became evident over the past two years. During the COVID-19 lockdown from March to October 2020, growth stocks outperformed value stocks significantly. For example, large growth was up 26.1%, while small value was down 4.9%. However, in November, after vaccines were announced, through the end of 2021, small value was up 53.7%, whereas large growth was up only 39.2%. What's more, the volatility between U.S. growth and U.S. value increased significantly, and the relative performance between the two flip-flopped every couple of months. Along with that, and while not as stark, we saw a similar relationship between international growth and value stocks. The question for plan sponsors is how can participants intelligently allocate between growth and value over the long term? And how can we make sure they don't chase performance, especially during periods of increased volatility? Plus, this difficulty gets exacerbated when we move to international equities, which participants may be less equipped to allocate to. This may be a reason to consider blend as a way to provide professionally managed allocation services to participants on a long-term basis. Plus, by including a blend fund, a plan may be able to rid itself of its value and growth options, thus decreasing its due diligence process by one fund. Next, let's move on to inflation. And as we know, inflation has reared its ugly head of late, and more and more participants have lost purchasing power in their retirement savings because of it. Now, one of the main asset classes many point to as an inflation hedge is real estate. But less than 40% of plans offer participants a real estate or global real estate fund. Historically, inflation and listed REITs have been positively correlated as inflation expectations rise. 
as have valuations for REITs, particularly in times of improving economic growth. For example, when the economy is growing and inflation is high, REITs have outperformed equities, commodities, and bonds. Now, in this case, we're defining high inflation as an amount over the long-term U.S. Fed target of 2% and growth by using the U.S. ISM purchasing, manufacture, and non-manufacturing blended index. This sort of environment actually occurs about 48% of the time. 43% of the time, however, we've had growth and low inflation. And in these periods, REITs and equities have outperformed both bonds and commodities. Other evidence for the value of real estate comes from David Blanchett at Prudential, who recently showed that asset classes like real estate and other types of real assets could provide participants with significant excess return. The point is this. Real estate funds provide diversification and an inflation hedge for participants. Plus, I think people have a better grasp for real estate than they do for other inflation hedges like commodities or tips. Moving over to the fixed income side of the ledger. Fixed income exposure, of course, is something that increases as investors age and become more conservative. Also, with retirement plans becoming more of a decumulation vehicle for participants, the fixed income options offered must become a greater focus. Now, you may remember that Janice Henderson and the American Retirement Association conducted research a couple years ago, which showed that equity funds outweigh fixed income funds and in plan menus three to one. Along with that, we found that the average retirement plan menu offers its participants only three or four fixed income funds, those being stable value, money market, bond index, and possibly an intermediate core bond fund. So with that said, where can improvements be made? As one can see from the types of fixed income funds currently offered, most plans have the short-term low risk to intermediate-term moderate risk portions of the fixed income spectrum covered. And while that may have been sufficient over the past few decades during a bond bull market, the current environment, which offers lower yields and a greater need for income, may now require plan sponsors to look further out on the fixed income spectrum. Based on the inflation fears that many have these days, tips or inflation-linked bonds could be a worthy addition. Not only do these make sense in the current inflationary environment, but research has shown that they can provide better yield and return than other types of fixed income funds. The question once again is, how well can the normal participant allocate to tips? Because of this, I think funds that offer more flexibility and allow participants the ability to gain exposure to different fixed income asset classes may be helpful for all involved. For example, we see increased interest in multi-sector bond funds as they can provide exposure to high yield, collateralized debt, asset-backed securities, and other types of fixed income securities all in one package. Not only that, but they provide a way to solve the current yield versus duration puzzle that many are faced with. 
This puzzle has been created since many of the types of fixed income securities offered in core or core plus funds offer very little yield and have higher durations. Remember, the higher the duration, the more risk one is having to take on to receive a security's stated yield, and thus the more sensitive it will be to interest rate changes. In research that we've done at Janice Henderson, multi-sector income funds may be able to provide an answer to this puzzle as they offer a 12-month yield of approximately 3% with a duration of only one. Compare that to something like intermediate government bonds that offer a 12-month yield of just over 1%, but a duration of approximately 3 Not only that, but a multi-sector bond fund will be able to be more flexible over time in order to manage duration risk and change allocations in order to provide participants with the income and total return that they need as they age. So those are a few ideas. And based on my count, that would possibly add three additional funds to a plans menu. While that's the case, remember, we didn't discuss rationalizing a plan menu. That could lead to deletions and an overall reduction of funds that an investment committee would have to review. As part of that process, I would encourage plan sponsors to look at the correlation between funds. Consider a fund's overlap from the standpoint of market capitalization, holdings, or other types of exposures. That review and rationalization is part of a solid fiduciary process. Sure, it may not lead to the removal of funds, and it may mean that there is more analysis involved with plan investments, but I think we can all agree that if our goal is to make sure participants are better prepared for retirement, this may now be what is needed. So, just like Wordle, there are thousands of five-letter words, and the combination of letters we select are going to create different answers and are going to have different meanings for those who are part of a plan. Our job is to figure out which letters are going to provide the best answer for participants today and tomorrow. Finally, the Janice Henderson research I referenced in this episode will be available in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. And as always, remember that we have our own channel these days for this podcast, so be sure to subscribe to Plan Talk with Ben Rizzuto. Until next time, thanks for listening. and views expressed are as of the date published and are subject to change. They are for information purposes only, and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold, any security, investment strategy, or market sector. No forecasts can be guaranteed. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, are not an indication of trading intent, and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply, that any illustration or example mentioned is now, or was ever held in any portfolio. Janice Henderson Group PLC, through its subsidiaries, may manage investment products with a financial interest in securities mentioned herein, and any comments should not be construed as a reflection on the past or future profitability.
There is no guarantee that the information supplied is accurate, complete, or timely, nor are there any warranties with regards to the results obtained from its use. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Equity securities are subject to risks including market risk. Returns will fluctuate in response to issuer, political and economic developments. Fixed income securities are subject to interest rate, inflation, credit and default risk. The bond market is volatile. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall, and vice versa. The return of principal is not guaranteed, and prices may decline if an issuer fails to make timely payments or its credit strength weakens. High-yield or junk bonds involve a greater risk of default and price volatility and can experience sudden and sharp price swings. Growth and value investing each have their own unique risks and potential for rewards, and may not be suitable for all investors. Growth stocks are subject to increased risk of loss and price volatility and may not realize their perceived growth potential. Value stocks can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time and may not appreciate to the extent expected. Real estate securities, including real estate investment trusts, or REITs, may be subject to additional risks, including interest rate, management, tax, economic, environmental, and concentration risks. Smaller capitalization securities may be less stable and more susceptible to adverse developments, and may be more volatile and less liquid than larger capitalization securities. A retirement account should be considered a long-term investment. Retirement accounts generally have expenses and account fees, which may impact the value of the account. Non-qualified withdrawals may be subject to taxes and penalties. For more detailed information about taxes, consult a tax attorney or accountant for advice. Diversification neither assures a profit nor eliminates the risk of experiencing investment losses. Volatility measures risk using the dispersion of returns for a given investment. Duration measures a bond price's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. The longer a bond's duration, the higher its sensitivity to changes in interest rates and vice versa. Janus Henderson is a trademark of Janus Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janus Henderson Group PLC. C0322-42530-03-3024.